0: So, in collected works of K. Krishna Swami Ayer, <coughs> this is the seventh book in English series uh, regarding Vedanta. In this, already we have seen two sessions. Today's is the third session. Om Sri Guru Namaha Maha Harihi Om Sri Ganesha Janamaha. Dr. Krishnamurti Shastri Dhambe Punacha, Bantwara Taluk Dakshina Karnataka, India, Bharata. So, today's topic is No Uniformity of Opinion Among People Concerning Abstract Ideas. (coughs) We shall resort to the way in which abstract or general ideas are first manufactured by the mind before we proceed to explain the origin of concrete ideas. It is quite evident that a child acquires its abstract notions later on and after a number of experiences of the same sensations produced by objects in other respects, different from one another. For illustration, let us instance redness. A child sees a red flower, a red coat, a red book, a red tint, a red powder, etc. before it can think of the one quality of redness as inhering in so many diverse objects. Therefore, whatever might be the objective source of the same sensations caused by different objects, the perception of redness as a quality depends directly on the power of generalization or abstraction that the human mind is endowed with. For just as this faculty is made apparent in the case of colors and other properties that are supposed to depend on the objective nature of things, a thousand other imaginary qualities are conceived in the same thing by different persons about whose reality they might such dispute among themselves. And some people require special mental training before they can comprehend certain abstract notions and in the acquisition they exhibit such an endless gradations of mental power we may perhaps agree most of us on the greenness of a leaf but about the exact degree we shall all differ and painters whose eyes have had the needful education can detect the least variations of the hue that the keenest sighted of the rest might miss or fail to notice If from colors we pass on to moral virtues, a consensus of judgment can hardly be available. I call a man good because he was very obliging, another man seeing him indifferent to some of his essential duties might call him bad, and still another with a sterner criterion of morality may pronounce him wicked, owing perhaps to a looseness of character he displays. About historical personages, people very often and more often than not come to have different estimates according to their whims or passions. One accuses Charles I. of tyranny, another defines the word so as to make it inapplicable to him or quite true, consist with all the evil traits that charles showed himself to be possessed of we thus find that though for practical purposes there is a high degree of uniformity or agreement in regard to the important import of abstract ideas yet this cannot prevent us from concluding that they are all mental creations and cannot stand as a guarantee for the reality of their external source conceived by us how then can we account for this Uniformity in the grosser conceptions, in the light of philosophy. Each one's world, one's own dream. Bishop Berkeley has given us a remarkable view of the percept world. He says, the world you imagine is your dream, and what I conceive is mine. The only peculiarity is that our dreams agree in many particulars. It is quite possible to explain even this agreement on the supposition of its being fanciful, illusory, and unreal. For, consider how all our ideas are clothed by us in a language taught us from our infancy, a language which had a particular import to our original teachers, and the fact of our use of the same phraseology awakening in them the same train of ideas with the, the utmost regularity and precision should be admitted as a foregone conclusion the child is presented with a shoe, a shoe flower the sight of it gives rise to certain sensations the child is not able to find expression for its feelings here the mother comes to its rescue She instructs the child in the form and color of the flower. She says the color is red. At first, the child receives the word with a vague impression. But when the same particularity is pointed out as inhering in several things in other respects greatly varying, the child's natural power of elimination comes into play. And at the end of innumerable lessons of the sort, given with the patience and taken with eagerness and interest the child remaining quite innocently unconscious of the complicated mental processes is going on within it through all that variety of experience at last comes to identify the term read with a particular sensation and this knowledge of uh, knowledge or idea increases in distinctness with the increase in the number and variety of instances with many of us there are a horde of words still awaiting to receive this impression of distinctness, and a great orator or poet is precisely the one whose power of abstraction in this sense has been of the very highest order. A poet is one whose words are expressive and appropriate, and the force of his diction depends on his bouncing on the right idea conveyed by a word, not after a laborious process of elimination, but immediately and, as it were, by instinct. What do we mean by a common world? It is thus seen that every individual creates his own language to express the world of impressions of his own experience and whenever he has to understand the language of his fellow beings, he first translates it imperceptibly and unconsciously into his own language. When I say therefore that your world and my world are one, I simply mean I am conscious of only my own world it is therefore begging the question to say that because we use the same words to denote anything therefore there should be such a real thing outside answering to all the conceptions we have regarding it from this point of view again we find that even if there should be a substratum for the external world we perceive no two persons can have the same idea about it simply because we have got only the senses to trust to, and they are by their nature perceptive only and not intuitive for whatever a and b may perceive in the world they must still make known to each other only by language and we have already shown that it is quite impossible for one man to ascertain in that way what another means if there were any subjective method of knowing one another's ideas of things that would raise a presumption in favor of there being a common world giving rise to a common experience to all beings that can perceive now just as the mind with the sounds object of the sense of hearing manufactures words which it invests with arbitrary signification so also with the aid of the experience it obtains through the activity of the other organs of perception it creates the world full of such a variety beauty and properties the world therefore to the philosophical can only stand for the source of sensations, as such it is quite unperceived and unperceivable, the choice before a philosopher. We should therefore decide whether it is a real external thing whose existence notwithstanding its imperceptibility must be be assumed or whether on the idealistic supposition we could explain why we are all led by natural impulses inclined to endow it with an objective reality. I am the cause of my own sensations. Here again Kant helps us to unravel the mystery in which the subject was hitherto enshrouded. You remember his three mental functions, time, space and causality. Now when the space function becomes active, we we become cognizant of space. When the time function begins to operate, we get aware of time and when causality function begins to work, we become conscious of an external thing. As Kant observes, in order that experience itself may be made possible, the human mind must start with this presuming the externality of things in space and time, in short of externality itself. These three functions should not be supposed to come into play one after another or at any interval. They precede all cognition and perception as the very necessary condition of their possibility. Whenever the human mind begins to work it must start with the idea of outsideness and otherness. These are the first products of the cogitating intellect which form the rapt. Uh, warp and woof of our experience of the external world our being able to take in external things in their relation to each other of both time and space means no less no more than that the spatial temporal and causal functions of the intellect have come to operate and as they are all proved to be subjective what is really different from them is merely the sensitive and no fancied source of them. Now if the sensations have been proved to spring from no external stimulus, if externality and otherness are themselves gossamers of my fancy, where should I derive them unless from myself? Hence I am the cause of my own sensations of pleasure or pain or beauty or ugliness, of comfort and discomforts, etc. Here we already come to tread on the sacred soil of the system. So this is the third session Hare Rama Sat